How's your long weekend going so far? Hopefully it's going okay. Yeah, a bit of a storm last night. It looks beautiful today, though. Hopefully we can get some, maybe some golf and some outdoor time in today. That'd be wonderful. There's uh, obviously lots of people away on long weekends. It's kind of the prime time to be going away to the lake or to the cabin. Uh, Some people are coming back. Some are just leaving. Nadine and I were gone for a few weeks at the start of July here for our vacation. And if I hadn't had a chance to talk with you yet, we had a a good vacation. Went down to Kelowna to see my parents. We, uh, We enjoyed some time at the beach, some time at the lake. We were able to go down to Vancouver, see some family that I hadn't visited for a little while, which was really nice for a chance to do. We uh, dodged some forest fires. We uh, got some golfing in. That's a frustrating game, golf. I love play, playing golf, but we go out one day, and, and I had a great round. This, this is not typical, but I shot an, an 89 one day. And so I'm feeling pretty good about myself, which isn't ready for the tour, but that's, that's a pretty decent score. I go out the next day, like, like well, two days later, 109. So I shot, so I, I can't make sense of it, but it's a frustrating game. But, uh, but we have to get, find that time. We've got to find time on a long weekend during the summer to go off and play and play these games. So hopefully you'll have a chance to go find some play, to play some games, which can actually seem like an odd thing to talk to adults about, this idea of playing, because we don't think about playing very often. That's kind of a kid thing at times to talk to kids about. But the matter of the truth, the truth of the matter is, all of us, regardless of how old we get or how young we are, we all need time in our schedule to get a break from the work or a break from responsibilities and find time to play. It just looks a bit different when we get older. Like, for example, instead of having time spent as a teenager with, with video games or playgrounds as a child or with these sports teams with soccer and hockey and whatnot, it just looks different when we get older. We, we go golfing. We start to travel a lot more. We spend time with friends and family, and that is considered relaxation time. But regardless of what stage you're at, regardless of how you currently define play in your life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hazard a guess here. I'm going to hazard a guess that I can guess what the very first game that all of you played was. Probably the very first game that I played. Probably the very first game that you played with your kids or with your grandchildren. And, and that game is a version of hide-and-seek called Peekaboo. Right? <laughs> Can we agree? It was probably the very first game any of us ever played. We, we did it with our kids. When our kids were just little babies in, in, you know, in the carrier or in their crib, we'd, we'd put something in front of their face, like a blanket or whatnot, and, and then you lift it and you go, peekaboo, right? We used to do that to Joshua, right? He's six foot four. We used to do that to Joshua back when he was little. We put the blanket down and go, where's Joshua? Where's Joshua? We go, there he is, right? So, peekaboo, right? And he's doing it right now. He's hiding. Where's Joshua? Where's Joshua? There he is, right? So, anyways, so we still do it today. It's like, come on, Josh, get out of school. He's hiding under his covers. Where's Joshua? But as we get older, the games evolve, right? The, the playing field gets bigger. The, the sense of freedom gets larger. And eventually, peekaboo turns into more of a traditional version of hide-and-seek. Now, I remember talking to a friend a little while back, a friend of mine named Matt, who was telling about when he grew up. And he lived on a farm. And he said that was the absolute best place ever to play hide-and-seek because there were so many places, and and the playing field was massive. Now, he was the youngest of three, and so he had an older sister and an older brother, and because he was the youngest, he always had to be it. He was always the one who had to count to 100, and then he had to go, he couldn't hide, he had to go find, he had to go seek out his brother and sister. But on rare occasion, he had the opportunity to go hide. Now, in between games of hide-and-seek one day, he found the best 
place ever to hide. And when it finally came time for him to hide again, as soon as his sister started counting, he ran around to the side of their house where they had this large farmhouse with this big gigantic porch. It was raised a couple feet off the ground with latticework all around. And there was a small hole in the latticework, just big enough for the youngest and the smallest one to climb into and hide underneath that porch. And so when it came time for him to go hide, that's what he did. He ran around and he, he slid in through that hole and, and crawling through there, pushing the cobwebs aside, he kind of wormed his way to the other side. And there he sat under the porch, looking out through the lattice, seeing his sister. 97, 98, 99, 100, ready or not, here I come. And he giggled to himself thinking, no one will ever find me. And then it hit him. No one will ever find me. <laughs> and he got thinking about it. If something were to happen to me, no one would ever find me. And, and he started to get really nervous. And, and the dark of under the porch got darker, and, and, and the cold got colder, and, and the tight got tighter, till finally he just called out, Here I am! I'm over here! And he starts crawling out. And his sister comes around, and she goes, Well, that's why we never let you hide, because you just don't know how to play the game. And so, as he came out from hiding, but he was, he was so terrified at this thought of, what if I never get found? But if we think of this in a spiritual sense, I, I think we could agree that to some degree, humanity has been playing a game of hide-and-seek with God since the dawn of creation. We have these hiding places that we like to go to. And we like, we like to hide from God, and we like to hide from others. We can see it throughout time. We can see it throughout Scripture. We can see it in our own lives. We can go back to the beginning of the Bible and in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden, tempted by Satan to eat that fruit. And when they do, they immediately feel the shame and the guilt of their actions. And what do they do? They go hide. But then what does God do? But God comes seeking after them, saying, where are you, Adam? Later on in, in the Bible, we read about Peter who declared that he would stand beside Jesus no matter what. I will never abandon you. He said, Jesus, no matter what happens, you're here, I'm here. You go here, I go there. I will never leave your side until that night when Jesus was arrested to be tried, to be beaten, to be crucified. And where's Peter? Peter's nowhere to be found because he runs and hides. But then after the resurrection, Jesus comes seeking him, saying, Peter, do you love me? And in Psalm 32, which we read earlier this morning, we get a look at this psalm that, that David wrote, that King David wrote, where he shares his own journey from going from a place of hiding in sin to being found in God, where he goes from this movement of depths of sorrow and guilt to being found in forgiveness and exuberance. Now, it's no secret that in this day and age ourselves that people are trying to hide from God in many ways. I've seen this throughout the years that I've been a pastor. I've seen it in my own life. None of us are immune to this. I, I've come alongside couples who, who will not face the brokenness in their own lives, the brokenness in their own marriage. And instead of facing it, what they do, they keep their schedules really busy. They keep their kids really busy. So we just have no time to deal with that. We see people who are hiding from the reality through, through fantasy worlds, through romance novels, through things on the internet that distract them from reality. Other people who have suffered trauma at the hands of another. And they try to escape that pain. They try to, to push down the pain. And they escape into things even along the lines of alcohol and drugs. 
People escape in the world of cutting, trying to escape these things, to hide from the reality of these things. But in all of them, in every single one of them, and so many more than I have time to possibly imagine here, God sincerely wants people to come out from under that blanket. He wants people to come out from hiding. He wants them to be found. Because when he finds them, they can then truly be welcomed, accepted. They can understand what it means to be forgiven by him. They can experience the joy and the security that is found in him. And when they are found, they can truly experience his forgiveness, his divine deliverance, and his guidance for them for the days that lie ahead. Psalm 32. We see David's story through this. If you have your Bibles with you, or if you have your Bible on your phone, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 32 as we walk through some of these verses today and unpack what this looked like in his life so that we may see what it could look like in our lives. As we walk through this psalm, an encouraging psalm of gratefulness that is shown to God, to God who not only seeks but finds, but who not only finds, but when he finds you, he sets you free from the need to ever hide again. Psalm 32. Starting in verse 1, we see at the very beginning of this psalm, we read the words of King David who declared, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, if you were with us at the beginning of this summer series, where we're walking through the psalms this summer, you'd recall that I, I began by unpacking Psalm 1. And in the very first words of Psalm 1, we see as well this term, blessed which does not refer to having nice things. That's not the type of blessed that we're talking about here. It does not refer to, uh, to things going your way or being honored by others. Rather, this term blessed, as it's used in the Psalms, as it's used in the Bible, conveys this idea of happiness and contentment. But, but happiness and contentment that is found in the Lord. Happiness and contentment that you experience when you encounter His goodness when you've come to see that he is the giver of all good things, of his provision, of his faithfulness, of his mercies, of his justice, and most of all, of his love that comes through to define love for us in our lives. That's what it means by blessed here. And now the setting for this psalm, King David is standing before a great assembly of people, kind of like, like what I'm doing here now before all of you. He's standing before a congregation in the temple. And he's describing to them the condition and the character that justifies this blessed state that is available to all of them. It's not exclusive just to him as the guy on the platform or him as the, as the king of the land at this time. He's describing to them a blessed state that is available to everybody within earshot. And he does so by using three terms. He does so by describing three descriptions of sin and God's manner of dealing with each one. See, he begins by talking about transgressions, that transgressions are forgiven. Now, transgressions being forgiven, this is the idea of this rebellion against God, that our rebellion against God is erased. And it would, when he said this to this congregation, they may think of the term we've heard ourselves, a clean slate. It's like having a clean slate, which finds that saying finds its origin back in a time before they had receipts and things like that when you would buy something or, or before they had credit cards. If you went to the market to buy something, but, but they extended credit to you, they would write your name on this chalkboard type thing and with the amount that you owed. And as you paid it down, they would reduce the number beside your name until it was paid off, at which point they would, they would erase it and they would clean the slate of your debt to that person. 
which is what's being referred to in the first one here. But then he also talks about our sins being covered. Now, this is that idea of us choosing to wander away from God, to wander away from God's way to follow our own, which we all know we have a tendency to do at times. He's saying when we do that, when we bring it before God and confess it, it is covered. Now, in our language, the word covered may not quite exactly pull through the full meaning because we can think covered as in swept under the rug. We just swept it under the rug and covered it over. Or we, we covered it up so you just can't see it anymore, but I can, I can kind of smell it still, even though I can't see it, which is the problem with just covering things up. But see, the cover-up they mean here is a bit different. The cover-up they mean here is not just to sweep it under the rug or to, to get some cheap dollar store air freshener and shh, just kind of cover up the smell. No, this is like getting a ball of Febreze, right? You know the Febreze slogan? Don't just cover up odors, Febreze them. Eliminate them. That's what they're trying to say. I don't know if it actually works, but that's what they're trying to say. We're not just covering things up. We're for breezing them. So, but the third one is that the Lord no longer counts these evil acts, these, these things we've done against other people against us either. That those things are no longer ours to bear. Later on in Psalm 103, David would talk about this removal of the sins in terms of our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west which is a really interesting statement because he didn't say as far as the north is from the south because here's the thing, north-south is a definite distance. You can only go north so far until you hit the north pole, then you start going south again. You can only go south so far to hit the south pole and start going north again. So you can measure north-south and south-north, but you can go east forever. You can go west forever. You see, that distance, as far as God throws our sins, as far as the east is from the west, is an immeasurable distance. It is a finite distance as how far he throws those away, never to be thought of or brought back to your account again. You see, what David is describing is that when we come out from hiding in our sins, when we are willing to open ourselves up, when we are willing to bear it all before God, just honestly lay it before him, when we're willing to admit that we have done wrong and we have fallen short of God's goodness, when we are willing to believe that we need something beyond ourselves to solve that problem, because we've trotted ourselves and we just keep coming back to the same problem, when we finally believe that we need something beyond ourselves and we look to him to be that thing. And then confess that we will strive to walk with God in his way rather than our own. In that situation, then God is faithful to forgive. And he forgives completely, is what David's trying to say here. He forgives completely. And the outcome for that is a blessed state for us. This blessed state for those whose sins are forgiven. This state of contentment and pure joy is what he's offering to the congregation that is before him if they lay these things before God. So as you read this opening passage, you may get the sense that things weren't always this way in David's life, that he wasn't always in this blessed state. And you'd be right, because they definitely weren't. Because this describes where David has arrived at. It does not describe where he began. And it doesn't describe where many of us may begin, where many of us may be sitting here feeling right now in these very moments today. You see, in the presence of the congregation, David turns from addressing them to personally addressing God as he shares his personal testimony, knowing that the congregation is eavesdropping on his conversation with God. And here's what he says. He says, God, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through the groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. 
But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you didn't cover up my iniquity. You said, I, will conf- I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful, let everybody who's listening, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble. You will surround me with songs of deliverance. Now, we're not told exactly what situation David was talking about here. Perhaps it had to do with the affair of Bathsheba. Perhaps it had to do with covering up the murder of Uriah. We don't know. We don't know exactly what it was. But what we do know is that when he kept silent, when he was hiding these things within himself, when he was hiding these things from God, when he was hiding from the truth that he had done wrong, it it was eating him up inside. It was eating him up spiritually as this heavy hand of God, this sense of conviction that he could not get free from was felt on top of him. It was eating him up emotionally as he talks about despair. He talks about the sense of helplessness. It was eating him up even physically where he's feeling this great sense of fatigue, sleeplessness, aching bones that come from the situation that he was preventing himself from releasing. Now, if you or somebody you know has ever dealt with a bout of depression, you might recognize some of these symptoms that we see on the list that David gives us here. You know, it's thought that David in this passage is actually describing a state of acute depression that he was in. And it was affecting his entire self. Now, you got to be careful with this because it would be wrong to assume that everybody who suffers from depression can reduce it simply down to unconfessed sin. That would be a wrong thing to do. Because there are many causes that can lead people into a state of depression. There can be biological challenges, genetic issues, life stages, postpartum depression. There can be stresses in people's lives that lead them into those points. And in all these, regardless of the cause, we do need to pray for these people. We do need to to find ourselves at a point where we can help them to invite God into the situation. We also need to encourage them to invite in counselors. At times we need to invite them to invite in doctors to the situation as well who can help them. And I hope that we as a church, that we will be a place where people who suffer with some of these challenges can come and feel safe. They can feel like there's a sense of understanding and support for them. In David's case, however, he seems to very clearly know the cause of his challenge. He seems to know very clearly the cause for him is sin, iniquities, and transgressions, which he called out in verse 2. And so he decides to come out from his hiding place. He decides to come out and experience God's forgiveness that he may be released from these things which are causing these afflictions upon him. Now, when it says in this passage in in verse 5 that God forgave. Now, the word forgave here is a Hebrew word, nasah. Now, Nassah literally means to, to lift up or, or to bear a great weight. To lift up or to bear a great weight. Now, imagine you have this massive heavy load that is placed upon your back, kind of like in the picture. And, and, and it's causing you to hunch over and you have to carry this around with you every single step of the way. And, and the weight is just crushing you're really barely able to move and you're overwhelmed and you're fearful that it's going to eventually pin you to the ground. But then suddenly, freedom. As, as this great weight is, is, is lifted off of you, ah, suddenly you can breathe a little more. You can move a little more freely. 
the sense of joy, you just can't help but feel like I'm just lighter on my feet. There's a sense of joy that starts to warm up. You, you start to have hope. Hey, maybe I can actually make it to my destination. And there's a sense of praise. Whoever lifted that weight, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, this is symbolic of what David's great relief was when God lifted that weight up off of him after he came out from hiding. Where that weight of sin and the guilt of the sin that he bore was transferred from him to elsewhere. And of course, we immediately think of the, immediate, the most greatest example of God's ever lifting up and bearing our sin when Jesus Christ was lifted up upon the cross and bore our sin upon him. You see, Jesus Christ was the one who accomplished the work that God has set forth that we may have that freedom, that we may experience that relief from the burdens of these sins that we carry around. But you see, God wants us to experience this. He wants us to experience his love. He wants us to experience his forgiveness. He wants us to experience the plan he has for our lives, but he wants to do it in the context of a relationship. You see, these things that it's not possible for us to do on our own, God knew. Because the sin that holds us down is the very thing that also separates us from God. In a sense, our sin causes us to hide in the separation from God. But God has been seeking everyone. God has been seeking you so that you may be found. So that when you are found, you could experience his Nassah. You could experience that lifting up for yourself that was made possible through Jesus Christ. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote the words where he said, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? That means that God put our wrong on him. That means that God put our wrong on Jesus, who never did anything wrong, so that we could move from being wrong to being right with God. So that we would no longer allow these sins to make us feel like we had to hide from We no longer had to hide these things from other people. So that we could accept the fact that all of us have fallen short. All of us have sin in our lives. All of us have fallen short of God's standard. Yet, God's love and his forgiveness endures through all of that. This happens so that we don't have to only put the the happy I've got it all together posts on our Facebook page. We can actually allow others to know sometimes we do struggle. You can maybe post different things on there. They say, hey, sometimes I fail. Sometimes I have fears. Sometimes I have doubts. I'm not always surrounded by happy, sunny, smiling faces everywhere I go. So that instead of hiding our true selves from from God, we could hide in God. Which is what verse 7 shares with us. When David then says, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. You see, initially, David is in a hiding place of his own creation. But now he declares that the Lord is his hiding place. And this hiding place can also be referred to as as a strong refuge. I remember a few weeks ago, if you were here, that Pastor Ryan spoke about a passage that referred to this idea of of a refuge, which is not just like a physical safe place of safety, like a bomb shelter, but it actually speaks more to a condition a condition of feeling like we are in a place of safety, which is very synonymous with the sense of feeling 
blessed. Happy contentment in the Lord. Safety, security in the Lord. So truly the one who has come out from hiding and experienced this Nassau of God, that person, if they have allowed themselves to do that, then they are able to experience that his burden lifting, his guilt removing, his shame cleansing, his eternal life giving forgiveness has entered them into this blessed state. Amen? Amen. Which is an opportunity that exists for every single person. Because God loves and is seeking after everybody that they may be found. Now the most glorious thing about this is that the moment you first confess your sin to God and accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice as payment, in that moment, he becomes your savior. That word savior is a term that means one who rescues another from danger, one who saves one from a state of danger. And in this case, Jesus is your savior. He's the one who rescues you from the danger of hell. He's the one who rescues you from that danger of eternal separation from God. But that's just the beginning. Because not only does he become your Savior, but from that point forward, he also needs to become your Lord. But as soon as we start talking about lordship, that's where it gets a little more challenging. That's where it becomes more challenging for us. Because most of us, I think, are okay with the idea that we need a Savior. That we need somebody beyond ourselves to help us get right with God. I, I think most of us understand that aspect of it. But where it really starts to get some tension built up, where it really starts to get a little more difficult, is when we start to talk about how we have to submit our whole lives then to him to live according to his will and according to his ways. Now that is tough. There's tension in that. Because always before us in this world, always before us in the old nature that has existed from the time we were born, is this pull in the other direction this pull that wants us to go away from God to say, you can do it your own way. Wasn't that the first lie of the Bible? And it's continued throughout time. You see, it's not a contemporary or a Western issue, this desire to do our own thing. It's part of the human condition. It's always existed. You know how I know it's always existed? Because it existed in the very first temptation, and it also exists within the words that David shares with his congregation thousands of years ago. The same challenge where he says this to them. He says, God promises that he will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. That's a promise God has made to everybody. If you will choose to submit your life to him, he will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. He says that he will counsel us with his loving eye upon us. But, here here David calls out the tension. He says, guys, let's not be like the horse or the mule, which has no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. You see, God is always willing and always seeking to provide us with counsel. It's always there. This this conviction we need at times to know if we're doing right or wrong, this counsel to make decisions, this comfort in times of need, it is always there before us. But if you're anything like me, we have this tendency to walk away from that. We have this tendency, this pull that goes, well, maybe I just go do my own thing. No, God, I, I know you're prompting me to speak up at work when people make fun of Christians. I, I know when I'm at school and people are making comments, I, I, I get the sense you're prompting me to do something. God, God, I know you want me to steer clear of those temptations that keep tripping me up, and, and I hate them too, God. And I know you want me to steer clear of them. God, I sense you nudging me to volunteer. I know I should volunteer for that, that uh, movie in the park with West Meadows and the Community Association. 
I know I should. But, but maybe I'll just do my own thing. Maybe, maybe I'll just stay here where it's comfortable. Now, maybe I'll just follow my own desires. See, David is describing for us here this type of resisting of God's leading that is common to so many of us. But he uses language that's a little insulting. He's referring to us as stubborn mules. And a stubborn mule, really left to themselves, just simply walks around aimlessly. A stubborn mule really has no purpose to what's happened in their lives. They just kind of wander around grazing. There's nothing more that drives them than these carnal needs and these impulses for, for food. There's no identifiable purpose beyond self-gratification that exists within a stubborn mule simply left to himself. So much so that the owner of that mule has to come along and coerce and forcefully guide by bit and bridle upon the head to force it to go the way it wants to go. And is it any surprise that at times that mule will resist and jerk its head away when it wants to go one way, but the owner wants it to go another? No, we can see some tendencies of David's testimony in this example. When It says that when he chose to keep silent, when he was hiding in his stubbornness, he had some of these burdens and these, these challenges that he was experiencing. But what it really paints for us, it, it paints this picture of the Christian life that is really unhealthy. Because it's not at all how it was supposed to be. It's not how God designed it to be. If that was how our Christian life was supposed to be, where there's this constant jerking of one way to the other way, my way versus your way, all we're going to end up experiencing in our Christian walk is frustration, and we're going to start to interpret God as being harsh and cold, and maybe even to the extent of calling him a slave driver and things like that, which show up in other passages of Scripture. But rather, see, God designed us to be in a loving relationship. One where we acknowledge that God's way, while it is not easy, I will never tell you it's easy. I will never tell you it is problem-free. But I will always tell you it's better. I will always tell you it's better. Because it brings greater security. It brings us into better relationships. It brings us into a point where we have a greater identity. It shows us that we have purpose. Our purpose is not simply to live and then die and cease to exist. Our identity is not simply an accident that happened somehow at some point throughout history. You are not an accident. You are not without purpose. God knows you and loves you and has been seeking after you and has a wonderful plan for your life now and forever. But we have to be willing. We have to be willing to lay down those parts of our lives before him in which we tend to hide. We have to want to be found by the one who not only seeks, but finds. Not only finds, but sets us free from the need to ever hide again. What are your hiding places? What parts of your life do you have this tendency to want to protect from God seeing? What parts of your life maybe you do not want others to see? Perhaps you've never opened your life up to the freeing and saving work of Jesus Christ. And, and it could be said that in essence, you have been hiding your entire self. You have been living for your own desires and your own drives your entire life. But as you listen to the words that I've shared today, as you listen to those, maybe there's a small voice. Maybe there's this nudging inside that is prompting you and saying, stop hiding from the truth. 
If that is indeed your case today, then I invite you to come out from hiding and to accept Jesus Christ and his gift of forgiveness. That he may come into your life. That he may give you new life and give you a new self. That you would no longer have to live and hide in your sin and in the shame and the fear and the guilt. That you can come out from that. Simply by confessing Jesus Thank you. I need you. I believe that you died for my sins. That I was unable to deal with myself. You are my Savior. And I long to take these steps to make you the Lord of my life. Perhaps you've taken that step in the past and, and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. But for lordship, well, there's some areas that you, you, know, you still wrestle with a bit. Maybe there's some past pain, some, some current rebellion. Maybe there's some habitual sins. Maybe even there's some addictions that you've allowed to, to get too far along and to take control where you no longer have control. If that's the case, then it's time to start hiding these parts of our lives as well and to bring those out to God that we could experience his Messiah, that we could be set free and have that lifted from us as well. Because when we do this and when he forgives, when we come out from under the weight of our burdens, we can then proclaim as David did at the end of this song. He says, rejoice in the Lord and be glad and sing. All you who are upright in heart. That is the final point that we can we can arrive at, that when we have, that we have a God who not only seeks, but he finds. And when he finds, he sets us free from the need to hide.